Good morning again. My name is Alan Pittman. If we have not met one another, um, uh, I am uh, privileged to serve as senior pastor and one of our elders, and we are absolutely thrilled that you're with us today. And I've got amazing good news. Uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but I've got a timer somewhere in this room. I know some of y'all are surprised by that, but there's uh, there's a timer for my preaching. And I kid you not, my son said that he spotted the timer today, and it said 1,423 minutes. So he said, I have that long to preach. I haven't done the math yet, but I'm looking forward to it. All right. We are uh, glad that you're with us today, and hopefully you heard the announcements a minute ago uh, on the video, and I want to let you know about uh, another one real quickly, and that is um, if you are already in a D group or you know you're super interested in being in one, I'm going to be doing a little bit of a training for D groups, and so if that is of interest to you and you've not heard from me, send me an email or a text and I'll get you information. Uh, Also, as was on the video, this is the last week to order t-shirts, so be sure and jump on the website and get one if you'd like one. And then here's another one that didn't make the announcements this week because it's brand new information, and that is we are sending a mission team to Portland uh, to work with Kaylee Vessels uh, and the collegiate ministry up there, and the approximate dates and the approximate cost, so it's not exact exact yet, but January 30th through February the 5th. Going to be gone about a week, and the cost is going to be about five or $600. So if you are interested in that, uh, reach out to the church office this week and share with Diana your interest, and we'll be getting back with you on more information. All right, we are in the middle of a sermon series in the book of Acts, uh, starting to wind our way down uh, to the end of the book. And if you've got a Bible with you today, I'd encourage you to go ahead and pull that out. We'll be in the book of Acts chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a hardbound Bible near you, underneath a chair, somewhere around you. If you need a Bible or know someone who does, feel free to take that home with you. That'll be our gift to you. Uh, when you came in this morning, you may have picked up a worship guide. On the back of the worship guide is a place where you can take some notes as we go through today's message. And uh, they'll also be on the screen. You can kind of follow along in that regard. Um, as we start our time together this morning, I want to read to you um, one of the biggest verses out of the uh, the entire book. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is, um, is, is the marching orders, if you will, from Jesus as he is about to ascend into heaven and everything we see lived out in the book of Acts springs from this. And so here's what Jesus says to his uh, apostles, his disciples, his followers, and, and here's what he said, middle of the speech, but he says in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so we've been walking through the story of this being lived out not only in Paul's life, but Peter's life and other, Philip and Stephen and others that are, uh, Barnabas, others as they're following Jesus, as they're seeking to bring the gospel not just to the people of Israel, not just to the people of Jerusalem, but to the ends of of the earth. And so we have read about three missionary journeys that Paul has been on, and understandably, as he's gone on that journey, those journeys, the gospel has been brought to the Gentiles and not just the Jewish people. Uh, A Gentile person is basically anyone that's not Jewish. And so they could be Greek, they could be Roman, they could be African, they could be lots of different places, but if they're not Jewish, they're Gentiles. And as the message of the gospel, the hope that's found in Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, no one can come to the Father but by him, that because of what he has done for us, living a perfect life, dying a death that you and I deserve, being raised on the third day, that there is hope to be restored to right relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that message as it is going from Jerusalem on to the Gentile people, there was an unsettling message for some. And that unsettling message was, there is no need to be circumcised and follow the Old Testament law in order for salvation to come to you, because salvation is by grace alone. And so, a bit of a struggle to the church in Jerusalem. In fact, today the passage we're looking at is episode three of an ongoing struggle with the church in Jerusalem trying to comprehend or understand or make sense of what all was happening. 
And so uh, I'm not going to turn to those chapters and read them, but you may want to jot them down. The three episodes are found in chapter 11, chapter 15, and then today in chapter 21. Back in chapter 11, Peter addressed the, uh, the, the council, uh, uh, the leaders there in Jerusalem, because they had concerns when Cornelius, a, a Roman centurion, came to faith, and he wasn't following the Old Testament law. And then in chapter 15, we have what is referred to as the Jerusalem Council. And they had the whole conversation, do Gentiles have to first become a Jew before they can become a Christian? And the council came to this conclusion. They said, we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God because salvation is by Jesus alone. And then now we kind of revisit, not the exact same story, but a similar story when Paul comes to Jerusalem, and we're going to read a text where Paul meets with James, who is the brother of Jesus, and the pastor or leader of the church, as well as the other elders. So let's look at it together. Acts chapter 21, we're going to start in verse 17 and read through the end of the chapter. This is Paul and those who are with him when the word we is used, okay? So Paul, Luke, and others that are with them. Verse 17, when we the followers of Jesus in Jerusalem, they received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, the brother of Jesus, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, Paul related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry, through those trips that he had taken all over the world. And when they heard it, the people there in Jerusalem, they glorified God and then listen to this. And they said to him, you see, brothers, see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs and confusion. He at once took sh soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune, uh, sorry, and when they saw the tribune, uh, duh, 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 there it is, and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him, meaning Paul, to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. So let's look at this story a little bit closer. And then let's see not only historically what took place, but how it applies to our lives today. We see that Paul comes into Jerusalem, which is what he's been longing to do. And when he gets to Jerusalem, he goes and meets with some of the other followers of Jesus. And at first, everything is joyful and giving God uh, glory, as Paul reported all that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry, essentially the things we've been reading about for the last several weeks and talking about all the things of God's ministry and work and miracles and salvation and powerful things being taken place among the Gentiles. But then quickly, you'll see in verse 20 that the atmosphere changes. And they move from being happy and joyful and excited, and it turns into an atmosphere of one of fear and concern. Look at the second part of verse 20. In the front part of 20, they glorify God for what's happened, but then the very next thing they do is they say, you see, brother, you see there are many thousands here among the Jews who have believed, and they're all zealous for the law, and, and they've heard some things about you, and what are they going to do when they find out that you're in town? Here, here's the deal. Many thousands of zealous Jews were so focused on the law that they were missing out on what God was doing among the Gentiles and what God was actually doing among the Jews as well. And they began to say things that just simply weren't true. And what they began to say is that Paul was teaching the Jews to reject the law, which was not a true statement. And then it says, the, these, are, these are many thousands. And I was curious this week what many thousands meant. You're like, Alan, it pretty much means many thousands. Well, I know that, but what does the Greek mean? And as I looked at the phrase, many thousands in the Greek, it actually is kind of a catch-all phrase. It's not a, a number, obviously. Rather, it's just a huge, innumerable multitude, too many to count. And in fact, some of the people who translate that from the Greek say that it's kind of a catchphrase for a number like this, 10,000 times 10,000. 
Another one that's much larger, 200,000 thousand. I'm not smart enough to figure out what that is. Is that 2 million, 2 billion? I don't know. 200,000 thousand. It's a bunch of people, right? And, and these folks were slandering Paul. They were saying Paul is teaching the Jews. They're teach, he's teaching them, do not circumcise your sons. He wasn't saying that. He was saying that Paul was dis telling them to disregard the law as Jewish people. He wasn't saying that. Here's what he's accused of. Down in verse 21, the word is forsake. The word says in 21 that he uh, was forsaking. He was teaching them to forsake Moses or the law of Moses. The word forsake is our word that we have today, apostasy. And you're like, I don't even know what that word means, and that's okay. Apostasy means I once was following this way, and now I reject it, and I turn my back on it and walk away from it. Like a complete forsaking, walking away from, falling away, defection, and insurrection against the law. These were hard, heavy words about Paul that just simply weren't true. Then look at verse 22. In verse 22, you can see that the council is obviously scared of these Jewish people that were zealous for the law. I mean, in 22, it says, what then is going to be done? I mean, they're certainly going to hear that you've come to town, and like, they're going to freak out. Like, what are we going to do? And you can hear the fear rising among the leaders. It's interesting. The leaders, according to what they say, apparently don't believe that 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 Paul is saying these things they don't necessarily they don't believe that that the the people have to be circumcised to be saved in other words they're fearful of a group that they know is in the wrong to some regard and yet they don't know how to address it and they become frightened about what to do and in, in essence I think that they have felt trapped by these unhappy people uh, a plan to try to satisfy them let me just put a pause on this whole scenario for just a second. Humblers might be saying and thinking, and we don't respond in the best way because we try to figure out how to help the grumblers. And when I say help, I don't really mean help. We're trying to avoid their complaining and let's do something to redirect it. The reality is God has called me. God has called the elders, God has called the pastoral staff, God has called the deacons of this church body to stand up and do what he's leading us to do while we love all people, while also respectfully ignoring the grumbling, not the grumblers, but the grumbling at times. Do you hear that as it's intended? Okay. It's not a knock against anybody, it's actually a knock against us as leaders if we don't stand up and do the right thing. All right, here we go. So in the midst of them being frozen by what to do, they come up with a plan. Paul, you're going to take these four men. And you see this in verse 24. They say, hey, there are four men that are taking a vow, and, and you need to demonstrate to these other people that you still love the law and follow the law. He was already doing that anyway. And you're going to stand up to them by taking these four men with you. You're going to present yourself and them to the temple authorities. You're going to declare your desire to follow this vow, and you're going to pay for their expenses, and you're going to purify yourself. Doing all of this will show that you are publicly uh, uh, still law-abiding Jew. You can see that at the end of verse 24. In verse 24, it says, they say, but you yourself, they will see, also live in observance to the law. And then verse 25, we don't have time to unpack it, but we see that it's not really an issue about the Gentiles because they're saying, hey, our, our instruction to the Gentiles is still the same. They're not required to be circumcised, but what's going on here is how do the Jews react to all of this? To say that their plan does not go, that things do not go according to their plans is putting it mildly, right? The plan was we'll appease the crowd, you'll do this thing, and then what do we find out in the second half of what we read this morning? Paul and the guys show up at the temple, and then charges come back at Paul. They begin to shout at him, and we see in verses 28 and 29 that they begin to make false claims against him and say, this is the guy that's going everywhere telling everyone that he's against Israel, he's against the law, he's against the temple, and on top of all that, heaven forbid, he has brought a Gentile into the temple. This guy is causing problems. 
It says that the crowd was stirred. It's almost like a mob comes into play. We don't know for sure, but there's a good chance that there's a lot of extra people in the city because if you'll remember, uh, Paul was trying to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. And so it's very likely there's a lot of people in the city, not just the, uh, you know, the Jerusalem people, and everybody gets all worked up. Whenever they make the accusation that Paul's against Israel, the law, and the temple, they're essentially appealing to their national and religious pride. Can I just say something real quickly? If we're not careful, we as people can be too focused on our nation and our particular denomination and overlook what God is doing. They got stirred up because, you, they, oh, they're messing with Israel. I can't deal with that. The reality is God is bigger than the United States of America. The reality is God is bigger than a Baptist church. We worship the King of Kings. All right, that's free, part of my 1,400 minutes. So what we have here with these slanderous claims that are coming out is very much like Christian Twitter today. You get on Christian Twitter, there is no such website as that, but you get on Twitter and you hear all these pastors and begin to label a bunch of people that they may slightly disagree with, but because they slightly disagree with them, they all of a sudden become heretics. And if you don't fit in my little postage stamp size of theology, then you're a heretic. Guys, we must be careful. Guard the truth, stay firm with God's word, and be slow to label someone who slightly disagrees with us as a heretic. All right, that's free as well. All right, let's keep going with the message. So what happens? They make these accusations. They're in the temple. They're like, Paul, you have no business being in this temple. It literally says they seized him, dragged him. They pulled him out of the temple, and they literally begin to beat the man. The mob is crazy at this point. And if it weren't for a few soldiers and leaders that came in and stopped it all, Paul would have been killed on the spot. And then Paul is placed under arrest. It's interesting that it says that he is bound. And he took me to the game. And on the way home from the game, here's what he shared with me. He said, Alan, just now I had a chance to share the gospel to two people that were in my car. And he said, granted, one of them was drunk and the other wasn't, but I shared the gospel. And so what I said was, man, that is such a beautiful example of taking what we're currently doing and infusing the gospel and sharing it with others around us. So whether you're an Uber driver, a stay-at-home mom, a school teacher, a trash collector, a professor, or a pastor, or a student or an athlete or whatever you are, we're not identified by that, but whatever you do, find avenues and opportunities to share the gospel. What motivates you? Preferably, the gospel would motivate us. Let's get to the second thing. Faithfulness. We see in Paul faithfulness in the midst of hostility. First and foremost, we see with Paul a faithfulness to the gospel he wasn't going to compromise the gospel truth ever. At the same time, Paul was raised a, a, a Jewish person. And therefore, he had been raised in the law. And, and as a follower of Jesus, he still saw the importance of being faithful to the law. He saw the importance of being faithful to his culture, to his nation, in spite of everything that was said about him. But when Paul followed the law, it wasn't for religious legalistic ritual but rather it was his pattern of devotion to the Lord and so whenever we live our lives let's do so motivated by the gospel and also with faithfulness to who the Lord is and as we do that we probably will face some hostility along the way Paul faced hostility for sure you remember when he headed to Jerusalem, all along the way, he was being warned by the Holy Spirit and by other people that what waited for him in Jerusalem was his arrest and beatings and difficulties and sufferings, and yet he plowed right through it because he knew the Holy Spirit was leading him to go, and because of that, he stayed faithful to the task that he felt like the Lord was leading him on. Once he was there in Jerusalem, he, he was beaten, and they literally attempted to kill him. There's an old saying, it wasn't his first rodeo, 
And the reality is he faced a lot of that. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to read it pretty quickly in the interest of time. But 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 28, Paul recounts some of the things he faced. He says, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, and with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. We're about to read about one of those in a couple weeks. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from these things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul, in the midst of all of this hostility, showed humility, love, and flexibility as he looked for opportunities to be all things to all people that by any means necessary, some may come to know Christ. Yet, on this occasion, in the midst of his faithfulness, On this occasion, it ends with a riot, and the people were attempting to kill him. And then he's rescued from death. How's he rescued from death? Only to be arrested and thrown in jail. And the reality is this, as we continue our time in Acts, all the way through chapter 28, there will not be a time where Paul's not under arrest. He will remain under arrest for the duration of Acts. He's faithful, even though it sometimes brings hostility. But in all of this, Paul was and remained faithful to God and the gospel. Guys, there will be times in our lives when we experience hardship in spite of our faithfulness. So here's a couple questions about this section. In the face of adversity, will you remain faithful to God? Right alongside of that is, do you have an unwavering faith in Jesus? I want to clarify what I mean and don't mean with the word unwavering. I'm not talking about perfect. I'm saying, is it steadfast? Is it solid? Is it firm? Did you know that one of the reasons we gather on a Sunday morning to worship together and to be in equipping classes is so that we can stand firm on who God is by being together and encouraging each other along the way? One of the reasons why we have hope groups, one of the big reasons we have hope groups is not so that we sit down and study the Bible in depth, although we do study God's Word and apply it to our lives, but rather we do it in community so that we're doing it together. The reason we have D groups is so that men can be with other men, women can be with other women, and we can encourage each other to have an unwavering faith in Jesus. And when one of us begins to waver, the other speaks truth into his life. So we're called to be faithful in the midst of hostility, and I promise I'll be done in less than 1,400 minutes. The last one is this. We see the sovereignty of God through it all. If we're not careful, you and I will overlook what God is doing in the midst of our difficulties. We can find ourselves thinking that God doesn't care or that he's somehow losing in this thing called life. God does care and God is not losing he is victorious but we must remember that God is still on his throne God is still sovereign in spite of what we're doing and experiencing Uh, my d group is reading through the book of Genesis and guys that are in my group a little preview of where we're going we're reading and we'll run across the story of Joseph and the life of Joseph in Genesis we find out the man is the boy is sold into slavery by his brothers He faces all kinds of crazy stuff in in Egypt, but then God raises him to the level that he's able to have an influence on a famine that afflicts Egypt and the surrounding territory, and the whole reason why this takes place, the reason he was uh, sold by his brothers is because of God's sovereignty. God wanted him there at the time that he was there so that he could bring hope and healing first and foremost to the people of Israel because his bloodline is rescued by the fact that they have a solution to the famine and therefore God's plan is able to march forward 
So we see in Joseph God's sovereignty even in his difficulty. And just like that in Paul's story, we see God's sovereignty showing up in a very unusual way. Here's where God's sovereignty shows up. God had Paul arrested. He did. If Paul wasn't arrested that day, he would have been beaten and killed by the mob. He would have been stomped to death. But God brought these Roman officials, which we didn't really have a time to talk about the terms there, I apologize. But they, they brought the, the religious, sorry, the Roman leaders down there. And here's the deal, guys. The Roman authorities, the cohort, the centurions, the soldiers didn't look down and go, oh my goodness, Paul is being beaten mercilessly. And he's innocent. Let's go rescue him. No, they're going, there's a disturbance in the city. And if Rome finds out about this, we're in trouble. And we're going to go break up that disturbance come hell or high water. They get down there. They're like, Paul, what are you doing? I don't know what's going on. You're arrested. Come with us. They don't do it for Paul's sake. But God sends them to do it for Paul's sake and for his glory. So we see God's sovereignty in the midst of an unusual situation where God uses Paul's arrest to save his life. And then here's the other aspect of why Paul is arrested. Where is it that Paul feels led to go after he goes to Jerusalem? Rome. What's his ticket to get to Rome? His arrest. We'll read the rest of the story of Acts. But God took a chain in his sovereign will and put a link in there that was called have Paul arrested in Jerusalem so that we can accomplish, so that I can accomplish my plan. So we see God's sovereignty. Here's the deal. When Paul was arrested, perhaps he saw God's sovereignty, perhaps he didn't, but most Christians wouldn't have seen it. When we're going through our thing, we don't always understand why the thing's happening and how it's going to all pan out. And sometimes we'll live the rest of our life without knowing it. But the truth of the matter is this, God is sovereign, he's in charge, he's on his throne, and we should trust him in the midst of it all. In your life, trust God's sovereignty always, even if you don't and if you never see the answers to the situation. I mean, we just read in our D group this story of Job. And God's sovereignty is there. He has no idea what hit him or why it hit him and all of that. And at the end of Job, he still doesn't know why, and yet he trusts God. Here's the application questions I want you to ask yourself. Do you really believe in God's sovereignty? Or is, like, is it just a good churchy-sounding word? You're like, Alan, it's a good churchy-sounding word, and I like to use it. I don't even know what it means, but I believe in it. Sovereignty for the way I would describe it, is simply God is the authority and therefore he has been and always will be in charge and his plans succeed. And he uses and orchestrates the various things in the world and in our lives in order that his will would be done. And here's the good news. His will being done is a good thing for his glory and for our good. So my question is, do you believe that God is sovereign? And then I didn't really like how I worded the question, so you can reword it if you want to, but hopefully the thing is getting communicated in it, and that is in what ways should my life that I live be different because of God's sovereignty. In other words, the fact that I believe that God is sovereign, how does that impact my everyday life? Perhaps, instead of getting over-anxious and worried about things, I can remind myself that God is still sovereign, and I can give myself some grace when I'm stressed over things, while also asking God to remind me that he is sovereign. If I believe that God is sovereign, then I believe that in my marriage, if there's not abuse, if there's not abandonment, and even in those, God can orchestrate and work his plan out for that marriage to be kept together but if I'm struggling in my marriage that I believe that God in his sovereignty has a plan for my marriage that he can restore and 
heal and redeem. If I believe that God is sovereign, then when I look at my checkbook, then I can know, hey, I may not have a lot of money in my account, but as long as I'm being a faithful steward of the money that I have, and I'm being um, an instrument that God is using, he is going to take care of me. I don't know how, but he's going to take care of me. So in closing, what I want to say to you is this, that we have been called to spread the gospel by all means. Are we doing that? Are we doing that individually? Are we doing that collectively as a church family? Or are we satisfied doing the religious stuff and just going through life? It's my desire that we would always remember as a church that we are to be a disciple, make disciples, be the church to the glory of God. And that we'd be faithful to that, whatever life may come. This morning, there's several ways that you might respond to God's work in your life. Could be that some of you are needing to say yes to salvation. Trust in Jesus and Him alone. His finished work on the cross and in his resurrection for salvation. Others of you, you need to respond to baptism. We're having it on October 8th, I think that's the date. And you need to sign up to be a part of baptism. Some of you, you need to join this church family. You've taken the membership class, you need to turn in your card and join. You haven't taken the membership class, you need to jump in the next one that we're going to have in October. Some of you, God's calling to be a pastor. God's calling you to be a missionary. God's calling you to be active in living out a vocational call of ministry. Some of you, you're being called by God to join a hope group. Some of you are being called to repent of sin. In all situations, we're called to seek to follow Jesus always. I'm going to lead us in a prayer, and at the end of our prayer, we're going to stand. There'll be two songs that we're going to sing. You can respond the same way in both of those songs, but during the second one, there will be a, an additional way to respond, and that is an offering plate will be passed. You can drop your money there. I know many of you give online, but if you have money and you want to give online, you can do that. If, I mean, sorry, if you have money and you want to put it in the plate, you can do that. Uh, you can also put your connection card in there. And then during the rest of this response time, sing, worship, pray at your seat, pray with me at the front, come and pray at the altar, bring someone to pray with you, fill out a connection card, the steps you're being called to take. Let's say yes. Let us say yes to Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be here today. God, we're reminded in the middle of this passage about the life of Paul, of your faithfulness, of your goodness, of your sovereignty. We're reminded that salvation comes by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We're reminded that it's not about works, and yet we're also reminded that we're called to obey your word. Father, we know that you're calling us to be a people who share the gospel and tell others around us about the hope that's found in him, in Christ. And we pray that you would push us out and strengthen us to do those very things. It's in the powerful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us? And would you sing, I'll be here at the front if you'd like to come and pray with me. Let's worship.
fails me all my days I've been held in your hand from the moment that I wake up till I lay my head I will see of the goodness of God not about to preach but I am going to lead us in a time of prayer and to set that up I want to kind of tell you what I'm thinking the the words that song just said with uh, every please put those last words up there what does it say oh y'all are saying it much better than I am where's that last one uh, oh my goodness with every breath that I'm able there we go and, and here's what I mean by that it says, with every breath that I'm able, I'm going to sing of your goodness. And it might be that some of us in this room and worshiping online, we don't feel like we have much breath. We may feel like we're not able to sing of God's faithfulness because life is just too hard. And many of us may be not thinking God's not faithful. We just can't, we can't, we can't. We, we can't say it, right? Like, it just hurts. Like, we're going through stuff. 
I'm reminded of how the Holy Spirit prays for us with utterings and groanings where we're unable to do so. So here's, here's what I want us to do. I want us to pray for each other. And the way that we're going to do it is this. In this room, we're standing. And in just a moment, we're going to pray over some of us in this room if you would like to be prayed over. For some that are worshiping online or maybe not even able to worship today, we're going to pray for them as well. There may be others that I'm leaving out, and it's not intentional, but I, I want to mention two families that I know uh, some of them are not with us in the room right now. They're worshiping online, and I want us to pray. I, I want us to pray for Mark Heslip and for his family. If you don't know Mark, you don't know his family, you're missing out. Mark's one of our deacons, but because of health reasons and battling ALS, he's not able to be in the building right now with us. I want us to pray for Bill and Isla McGee. And there's probably others that I am failing to say out loud, but those are on my heart right now. And in this room, this is how we're going to pray for them and for you. If you would say, I'm struggling either with sin or difficulty or confusion or just anxiety, you're not saying I'm the worst sinner ever if you sit down. But if, you, if you're in need of prayer and you would like someone around you to put their hand on your back and pray over you, then I ask you, if you need prayer right now, to just find a seat. And if there's someone that's sitting down near you and you feel comfortable, would you just reach out or extend your hand towards them? And I'm going to pray for us. And I ask you to do the same. So if you would like someone to pray over you, just have a seat where you are. And we're going to pray. As you feel led to move around the room, feel free to do that. And let's pray. As I'm praying, if you're still moving, that's okay. Do that. Father, we come to you now. God, we pray for our church family. Some people in situations we know by name and by situation. And so, Father, as we pray over these that are in this room, we pray over Bill and Isla and Mark and Kelly and the families. Because in spite of what we are facing, we know those words are theologically true, that you are faithful always. That your goodness can be experienced in the midst of the thing we're facing. Father, would you bring healing and wholeness where that's needed? Father, would you bring forgiveness where that's needed? Father, would you bring repentance? where that's needed? Would you bring hope where it's needed? Would you bring answers and clarity where it's needed? Would you bring miracles where they're needed? Father, right now I'm struggling even to know what words to pray, but I'm praying that your goodness would be felt. And even as I pray those words, Father, I'm not asking for the situation in our lives to be perfect and free from pain. I'm not asking for them to go the way we want them to go. We're asking for your will to be done and our faith in you in the midst of that. And Father, I pray that you would bring courage and strength to people in our church family to share with others how we can be praying for them. That you would bring transparency and openness and humility and 
D groups and equipping classes and hope groups and serving ministry areas, conversations in the hallway, even around these prayer circles right now. That, Father, you would make us into your people that love you and pursuing you while loving each other. And even as we pray for each other, Father, help us not lose sight of the fact that we should be praying for our community and taking the gospel by all means necessary to everyone we meet. We declare to you that you are faithful and you are good and we love you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. We're dismissed. Spend some time with your church family before you leave. Thank you.